listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Good morning. My name is Andy Bredding, and I serve with the youth on Wednesday nights and also uh, on Sunday mornings at 9.15, Doug Evangelisto and I have a Bible study. You're all welcome to attend. It's, for, it's open to anyone. Today I'm uh, reading from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithe of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself shall be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God is like a child shall not enter it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, brother. There's nothing any more frustrating than going on to a job and being brand new and being thrust into roles that you have no idea what you're doing. I've experienced that before. There was a time in my life where a particular job that I had came to a close. It was not something that I could keep doing anymore. I hated that. It was a good job. In fact, uh, it came to an end when we had insurance 
and, uh, and we had a baby on the way. <laughs> that was, I remember that. But I went into another job, and uh, it, it was going to be a job that I would ultimately enjoy. But in the very beginning, I did not enjoy it at all because it was quite complicated, and I was given what was some would call training. But then at the end of that training, I really didn't know much more about what I was doing than when I started. And what made matters worse was then when the boss came around to inspect what I was doing, when he was displeased with the fact that I didn't know what I was doing, I'm the one who got yelled at. When, in, in my mind, I thought, you know, if, if you'd have taken a little bit more time to train me, I would have been a little bit more prepared for, for what was to come my way. Mainly because you can tell someone what to do, but then when they're doing it and everything is going crazy around them, well, that takes the whole training to a a whole negligent era. Because now I only know what to do. I don't know what to do when all the sirens are going on around me and everyone is screaming about the things they think I should be doing. We've experienced those kinds of situations. What Jesus explained to his disciples that Luke recorded to us last week, having to do with the kingdom and its coming. Jesus explained to them that the kingdom of God was indeed coming and had indeed come, even if in a partial experiential way. You say, how is that possible? Because as king... Wherever the king is, so is his kingdom. But then he turned right around and said, However, the full expression of the kingdom that you're expecting, that you're waiting for and hoping for, is going to come at a later time. And oh, by the way, it's going to come at a time much later than you would prefer. In fact, you're going to wish it would come. You're going to wish that it was here and experienced in the full. And what I'm going to encourage you to do is keep obeying. Keep walking. Keep trusting. Keep expecting. And live as I have laid out for you to. With the expectations and realities that I'm teaching you right now. And I think what Luke is doing is then showing us how that on the heels of that information that's the kingdom's here, yay, but it's not what you're expecting. Oh, and it's going to be a while before it gets here. Okay, and it could get really bad before it gets here. Okay, wow. Now, how are we to navigate those times? You realize we're still in these times? I personally believe this is where I land that the kingdom of God was inaugurated in the death and resurrection of Jesus. I believe that it, it, it is started. It is already. But it is not all that we are expecting. It is not all that we are hoping for. I think it goes back to the great 80s theologian Bono, who penned the words, I still haven't found... See there, I knew I had some U2 fans in this place. Bono wasn't questioning his faith. What he was saying is, it's not all working out like I'm expecting it to ultimately work out as. 
And that's what Jesus said. Now, how are we to navigate that time between then and the future, the not yet aspect of the kingdom? And I believe what Luke's going to show us here in these three little seemingly unrelated incidences. I think what Luke is doing is he's painting the portrait of Jesus. He's showing us his journey of determination from Galilee to Jerusalem where he's going to be betrayed, where he's going to be rejected, where he's going to be crucified in our place for our sin, and he's going to be raised from the dead victorious as Messiah King forever Lord returning. And he's teaching the disciples, and he's addressing the opposition, and he's calling those that are curious all along the way. And I think what Luke is doing is he's taking some scenes that might not have happened in this particular order, and I think he's putting them together to demonstrate the teaching of Jesus on how to navigate the, the period between the beginnings of his kingdom in what may seem like an insignificant way and the arrival of his kingdom in all its glory. How do we navigate that? And I'm going to argue that we are to navigate that through prayerful dependence. We navigate the time between then and the future of which we are in right now. Many of you celebrated communion with us this morning, identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus. Guess what? You're between then and not yet. And you're navigating the time of a calling that is to go and make disciples. Teach them the things that I have taught you before. And I'm going to be with you all the way till the end of the age. And I'm coming again and I want to find you busy. I want to find you faithful. That's you. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's the time in which you are navigating life right now. And I think what Luke is showing us is that we are to navigate that time through prayerful dependence. Now, all three of these little sections could be preached in its own context. Because I think what we're going to see is is text that could have happened in different places and times. Maybe not right in order behind what Jesus taught. But I think what Luke's doing is like, no, Jesus was teaching us about prayerful dependence and these are the things that he taught and you go wait a minute that's manipulation not if God is the one who superintended his word if God has decided how he wanted the teachings of Jesus to be organized by Matthew Mark Luke John or Paul or James or Peter then that is a scripture that is inspired by God and under his uh, authority and I think what Luke does is he takes in his creativity, while all, this, all, this, all along God is superintending what is to be done. Here's what I think he shows us. I think he shows us the, the, the dependence, the prayerful dependence with consistency and persistence in the first section. I think he shows us how that through prayerful dependence, God will raise those who come to him humbly in their prayerful dependence. And I think last we're going to see how that God will eagerly welcome those who place their dependence on him with a reckless abandon and childlike faith that puts no conditions and just jumps blindly into the arms of the one that they're trusting. And I think that's what we'll come away from today 
Let's look at these. The first, verses 1 through 8, I see that God moves on the consistent and persistent prayer of his children. What, what did Jesus do? He told a parable. He told a parallel story. Parallel to what? Parallel to real life. He gives a, an illustration, if you will, to give the disciples, to give the learners an opportunity to understand the basic principle that he's teaching. Luke has more parables recorded than any of the other three gospel accounts. In this parable, he talks about two individuals, a judge and a widow. It's very likely that this this judge was someone who was not necessarily a part of the Sanhedrin or a ruling uh, segment of the Pharisees or the religious leaders. Probably this judge was a police-type magistrate that would have been in varying cities or varying regions that would have been appointed by either the rulership of Herod or by the Romans themselves. They would have taken and picked a, a city or regional official to take care of matters of the, the legal system. So we're probably not dealing with the temple authorities here as much as we are dealing with more of the law officials. The expectations of the people for law to be upheld as the Romans had dictated that the law would be upheld. And so what we've got here is a judge that was likely like a policeman with uh, sentencing or jury-like aspects. And Jesus tells us that this judge was an uncaring individual. What did he say? He said he had no fear of God and he had no concern for people. It basically meant that he walked around self-confident in his own way of thinking, in his own judgment, and quite frankly, he had no uh, uh, feelings or, or, or tendencies toward uh, uh feeling the, 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 the hurts that others are going through because of injustices that would happen in and around them. This is a guy who, who really probably didn't want to ever be bothered and only wanted to take care of things that demanded his attention. And this widow would not have been one of those things that he would have considered a demand. But very likely, this widow of the scene was being taken advantage of. Why was she being taken advantage of? Because she was a widow. Her husband had died. Very likely, she had no one else to speak for her. Maybe not a son that was old enough yet to be the man of the house. Maybe her father had passed and there was no other individual willing to take her in. She was trying to eke out a life of her own in a place that did not recognize or appreciate her abilities if she had them because simply she was a woman. So being taken advantage of, the only place that she could turn was the legal system over which this guy who didn't fear God and didn't care about people was in authority. You ever felt yourself in that position? Suffering a situation and and, and you know it's unjust? You know what's happening is not right? 
And yet you turn around looking for somebody to, to take on your hurt and your problem, and it seems like everywhere you turn you get a, a dead end. So we experience that all the time at work, sometimes even in our schooling situations, in our communities, with our HOA. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of things that you can experience. We've actually got a good HOA, don't we, Chad? But anyway, Jesus is talking about not so much the stuff happening in your life, but the things you will face in opposition to the faith that you are to be trumpeting with your life. As you walk by faith, as you present Jesus to the world you encounter, you're going to face opposition. And that opposition is going to be unfair. Hear me now, believe me later, but I think it's going to happen that this nation is on a crash course right now to make genuine Christianity a hate-thought type of philosophy. I think that's the way we're headed. Where that if you, if you actually say, no, no, I... I'm not saying you got to stop believing what you believe. I just believe what the Bible says, and I want to live my life according to what God's Word says, and I want to raise my children according to what God's Word says, and I want to tell my children that what you're saying to them is wrong when they get home because home is my place, and I just want to be a, I just want to be a, a good citizen who willfully, even though not desiring to pay my taxes, I want to be a a good law-abiding citizen that also follows Jesus. You're going to find out that's what you want more of. And I believe that this nation is, is, is greatly headed in a place where that's going to be deemed in some fashion criminal. Where we're going to be looking around going, I'm just trying to do the right thing. And your society's saying, you've got the wrong idea about what's right. Really? I'm trying to love you all. No, you're not. Unless you celebrate what I celebrate. Unless you say what I say. What you do is anti-love. It can be borderline on criminal. You go, you really believe that? Y'all watch the news? I mean, really? How are we going to navigate that? Jesus said, well, won't you think about this widow who looked around for somebody to, to, to give some justice, somebody to speak some truth into this situation, and there was this one dude who could do it. But he didn't care about God, and he didn't care about her. So what did she do? She knocked on his door, told him her problem. What did he say? I don't care. Get away from me. She knocked on his door, told him her problem. I said I don't care. Knocked on his door, told him her problem. Knocked on his door, knocked on his door. Standing outside going, I got all day. I got nowhere else to go because nobody else will listen to me. I must stand here and day after day I'm going to say, will you please do your job for crying out loud? Jesus says, the judge goes, she's wearing me out. 
She is annoying me so much. And there's actually one that I read behind that said that that term that she's, uh, she's, uh, where is it at? She's, she is uh, not beating me down by her continual coming, this verse 5. That it might have had the idea of, if I don't do something, she's going to keep on until my reputation's going to be ruined. Which I find comical. Because how good a reputation could this dude have had anyway when he was ignoring justice on her behalf? But his thought was not for her. His thought was for himself to get relief from her and to hopefully not ruin his standing in the city. Okay, ma'am, will you please leave me alone? I will do whatever you need, Jesus says. Think about the words of this jerk of a judge. And didn't he do what she needed ultimately? Well, yeah. He goes, okay. Then how much more will the God who treasures you, will the God who adores you, Will the God who absolutely will literally move heaven and earth? Maybe it would be better to say combine heaven with earth in order to make a way for you. He says, verse 7, Will God not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night will he delay long over them the rhetorical response would be no no he's not going to delay long of course he's not why because he loves you i'm not going to camp out on the fact that it says right here that he chose you but i do want to highlight the fact that it says He chose you. And I'm going to leave that there and deal with it at a later time. Jesus said, he looks at his children and he says, I'm going to give you the justice that you need. Did the text say that he's going to give you whatever you ask him for? Nope. Does the text say that if you ask God to, uh, God, I really want to be out of this situation and I want you to end this and then move me over into a more uh, acceptable situation, that God's going to do that? No. They say that God's going to uh, change uh, the mind of those that are against you and, and, and cause them to miraculously be for you instead of against you. Nope. He said he would give you justice, meaning that he would bring about the right thing as the just judge. He says he's not going to delay. No, he's not going to delay. He says in verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Well, I don't always experience that. I'm still going through trial. I'm still going through opposition. I'm still facing things that are coming at me that aren't right. And you say he's going to give me justice speedily? Yep. Compared to eternity, he'll be right there. You say, well, that's not fair. The fact that 
that you've been redeemed is the pinnacle of unfair. But it certainly is the pinnacle of love, mercy, and grace. And if God delays in providing justice that you expect today, then it's simply because His plan and purpose for glory in your life demands the injustice. Because what you're going to do is you're going to reflect Him in the midst of trial more greatly than you would without the trial. You say, that doesn't make sense. Well, look at the cross because it's exactly the same thing. You go through temporary difficulty in order to attain eternal glory and not ours ourselves, but His who loves us and gave Himself for us. But He says, He wants to hear His kids call out day and night. He wants you to be like that consistent, persistent widow. Hey, God. So I'm going through some difficulty. I'm going through some trial. This is, this is getting a little hot. This is getting a little uncomfortable. I need you to step in and do, I can't tell you how many verses that I've read. I think about Psalm 25 verses 2 and 3 where the psalmist goes, Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Getting real close to shame, Lord. Let not my enemies exult over me. They're, they're tuning up their instruments. They're about to sing their song of victory over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. God, I'm trusting you. I'm relying on you. And the heat just gets hotter and hotter and hotter. It's not because God's not desirous of bringing you justice. It's because His glory in you is just shining brighter and brighter and brighter. And and, and it's escaping me where it says that tribulation in our life brings about endurance. And endurance brings about confidence. And confidence brings about bring it on. That doesn't say that in the text. But that's kind of where you bring it on. You can't destroy me. You can kill me. You can hurt me. But I ain't scared of you because God's got me in his hand and he ain't letting go. And if you kill me here, I'll be back when he comes with a smile on my face. You go, you really believe that? I do. It's a whole lot easier to say than it is to live. And it'll be impossible to live without consistent persistent prayer prayer is without a question the single most difficult thing for me to consistently participate in you go the pastor yes yes hey you know you know what else to excite you I'll excite you even more. The second most difficult thing for me is reading God's Word for me and not just to teach y'all. So there you go. Aren't you encouraged? Let's pray. We'll go home. Why is prayer so difficult? I think because it's contrary to our flesh. 
Our flesh says, I got this. Our flesh says, if I don't got this, I'm going to figure out a way to get this. And our own sin and our own pride doesn't like to admit we don't have anything. But when we in honesty and dependency come before our Lord and we raise our arms to him consistently and persistently, what we're going to discover is that we don't have to have it. Never had to have it. We, we just had to ask for it. We just had to be dependent on it. Jesus says, keep on asking, keep on knocking. I like what Hebrews 4.16 says, draw, conf- uh, draw then with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? So that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Are you facing opposition? Prayer's the answer. If you're not facing opposition for your faith, then your faith might unfortunately be tucked down underneath all the other things going on in your life. And that still needs prayer to unearth it so that it might be the dominant aspect of your existence is Jesus Christ and him crucified and the gospel to be presented to all creatures is that the dominant driving factor of your life if it's not then a consistent persistent prayer needs to start today that that might be what defines you and then when it does and you face opposition and you will we'll just keep up the practice trusting relying waiting then jesus says and i wonder when i come back will i find any faithful i think he's going to find a whole lot fewer faithful than could be but we could be faithful if we will be then he moves on tells another parable moves on from the fact that God moves on consistent persistent prayer in his children he tells another parable about two guys that went up to the temple to pray one was the the person that everybody in society would revere the one that everybody in society would have thought would have had it together Got all his ducks in a row. He's right with God. Everything's cool with him. Why? Because he's a Pharisee. And they got it all together. That one went up. Everyone would have thought him to be as close to God as a human being could. And then another also went up to pray. A tax collector. The one that was despised by everyone. Why? Because it was one of their own people. Uh, an Israelite working for Rome, collecting unjust taxes and skimming off the top of his own people. Getting rich off the oppression of my own people. The Jews hated tax collectors more than they hated Gentiles. The Jews hated tax collectors more than they hated Samaritans. 
the going opinion was that tax collectors were generally hated by all. Jesus says two guys went up to pray. A Pharisee went to the temple, and a tax collector went to the temple. They had two very distinctly different prayers. The Pharisee didn't actually pray for anything. In fact, he just basically gave God a rundown on his situation. You know, God, in case you didn't take note today, I just want to tell you about what all I've got going on. As a result of my own righteousness, what I bring to the table, I just want to, I want to excite you by what I bring to you today. He didn't ask for anything. He didn't confess anything. He didn't cry out in dependence for God on anything. He didn't intercede on behalf of anyone. He just said, God, I thank you in verse 11 that I'm not like other men. I'm not like an extortioner or the unjust or adulterers or even like this tax collector over here. God, I just want to praise you that I'm not like one of them. Give you a bad taste in your mouth? Yeah. How often, though, do we as followers of Jesus look at the offenses of others and say in our, in our hearts, if we won't say it out loud, well, at least I'm not that. Well, at least I don't do this. Well, at least I've never been caught over there. You know what we sound like when we say those things? This wicked-hearted Pharisee. Who said, God, I just want to tell you, I'm just so glad that I'm not like all these other folks that uh, are sinners. In fact, I fast twice a week. Even though in the law, in the Torah, I'm only required to fast one day a year. That's before the Day of Atonement. Well, I do it twice a year, every Tuesday, every Thursday. I fast, and everybody knows it. They see me do it. I tell everyone I'm doing it, trying to encourage others to do it as well. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything. My money, my, my, my food, my, my, my little garden of, of herbs and spices. I even give a tenth of those. I make sure to do everything. So guys, I wanted to tell you those things about me and... I know you're proud, and I'll come back later and tell you some more good stuff about me. You see, that it probably wasn't that they had never heard the Pharisees pray like that. They just had never thought anything of it other than, yeah, he's probably right. And now Jesus is presenting them as the guys who don't have it together. He said, but the tax collector, verse 13, standing afar off, Why? Because he knows he's not welcome around the folks. Because he knows that, that if, if anybody sees him trying to, to look like he's getting close to God, they're going to boo him out of there. They're going to throw stuff at him. They're going to make a ruckus. And I just kind of want to be in God's presence. And I know that, that the temple worship is, is, is kind of that central location. I just want to be here, but I don't want to be seen. I just want to be in the corner. I don't want anybody to notice that I'm here. And he says he wouldn't even lift up his eyes. He knows what kind of man he is. He knows the things that he's done. He knows the cheating 
the extortion, all the stuff that he's done on behalf of the Romans. He knows how wicked he is. Won't even look up into heaven. And Jesus says that he's just beaten on his chest. And in mourning and grief, he's just, he's flogging himself as he prays. And he's saying, God, I don't deserve anything from you. I don't deserve anything but your justice and your judgment. But God, I'm asking, please, if there's any way that you can show me some mercy. Now, what's interesting about this word mercy is that it's only used twice in the New Testament here and in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 2, verse 17. I'm not going to read it, but you can look it up. This word for mercy is the Greek. Now, follow me a little bit. I'm going to get a little technical with it. You know, the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, okay? Those were the languages of the Old Testament. As the Greek language began to sweep into where uh, the Greeks had been and the Romans had overtaken them, now Greek was becoming the more common language of the people because the Romans spoke that, but they didn't speak Hebrew and Aramaic. So if you were going to operate in the Roman world, you needed to learn Greek. So over the course of, of the years, the Israelites knew Hebrew and Aramaic, but they had to learn Greek in order to operate in the Roman world. Well, as more people were learning Greek, then they needed to be able to teach the Old Testament in the most common language that everyone would be used to. So a group of scholars took the Old Testament and they translated it into Greek. The Greek Old Testament is called the Septuagint. Whenever you come across, that's just the Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, into Greek. The Septuagint. Sometimes you'll see it in, uh, in letters LXX, which is the Roman numeral for 50, 10, 10, which is 70 because historically there were 70 scholars and blah, 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 blah. What's interesting about this word mercy is that is the word in Greek for mercy that is used in the Old Testament to translate the Hebrew word kapur. So I've heard that before. Yeah, you have. Whenever you've heard of the calendar celebratory event known as Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is simply day of atonement. It's the day of atonement in its Hebrew translation. Why did they translate this word mercy from that word for atonement? Because that uh, that, that tax collector was going, I'll never meet up to your holy stand. I'll never be able to be what they say I need to be. The only hope I have is that you will show me atoning mercy like when the Israelites were gathered before the tabernacle on that one day of the year when the the blood would be shed of the one goat and put in a basin and then walked behind the curtain into the tabernacle and poured on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which interestingly enough is called the mercy seat. 
And the priest would come out and declare that sins had been forgiven. And then he would place his hands on the second goat and send it out into the wilderness, depicting that the sin of the people had been paid for and removed from the camp. Tax collectors saying, I need atoning mercy. I need forgiveness that I can't provide for myself. I need mercy as a substitute. Won't even look up into heaven. Won't even bring anything that he thinks might be a good work before God. He just says, I'm broken and I need atonement and you're the only one who can give it to me. You know what Jesus said? He got it. That one went home justified. Declared righteous by the God who is just and the justifier of those who come to him as a repentant sinner. He said, that brother went home justified. That Pharisee went home in just as bad a shape as he came to the temple. What was the point Jesus was trying to make here? It is humble dependence upon him. I could take that text, I can preach the gospel, which in fact, I just did. But I think Luke took that text and said, you'll navigate the time between now and then through prayerful dependence that is consistent and persistent and always asking and always trusting and always expecting and always pursuing and through dependent prayer that is humble and repentant and knows what you bring to the table but knows what he has available to you. How do we navigate this thing? Through constant prayer and humble submission to his grace. Because you're going to need it every day. And then the last scene, which seems the most disconnected. He says that they were bringing children to him. At, at this time, well, maybe, probably not, but somewhere along the way, Folks were bringing their children because it was common to take your children to a rabbi, a known rabbi, so that they might take them and bless them and say a blessing over them. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing to do. The problem is, is that the disciples saw folks lining up, most likely folks lining up going, this is something bigger than a rabbi. This is somebody more important than just a traveling preacher. If anybody needs to touch little Johnny, it needs to be him. If anybody needs to touch my child and bless it, it needs to be who we really believe this guy's probably Messiah. And they're bringing their kids. They're not bringing their kids to be saved by his touch. That's not what's happening. They're not bringing these kids to get some sort of supernatural covering or bubble over them. That's not what's happening. They're just bringing those kids into the presence of this one that they really think is probably Messiah so that he could bless them. And the disciples are like, he ain't got time for your snotty young'uns. 
He don't have, look, leave the man alone. He's been healing. He's been preaching. And good grief, your kids are annoying. Could you get them away? Now, in Mark chapter number uh, 10, verse number 14, it says, when Jesus saw that, he was indignant. Now, that indignant means it brought it up from a level of, man, you guys are really ticking me off, to a place where you'd say, hey, Y'all know what that sounds like, right? So, hey, quit it. Leave them youngins alone. You, you let them bring their kids to me. You know why? Because kids are important. And I'm going to give you a little idea. Next week, I'm coming right back to verses 15, 16, and 17. And we're going to talk about how important children are to the Lord. But Jesus uses this opportunity as a place to give another illustration where he says, you see how these kids just come up to me? <laughs> and they do that right there. I mean, they just get up in my lap. I, I just, you know, it, it's what's so much fun when you're around kids that know you is that they just want to be with you and you just, it's so much fun to be around you. And Jesus is like, you let them come to me. I love these kids. And by the way, the kingdom of God is for such as these. How so do you mean, Jesus? There there are some who believe that this is a text that gives us the idea and the understanding that children who die before they reach an age of understanding are safe in the salvation that is provided through Jesus Christ death and resurrection. I don't know that that's something that you can conclude from this text. I personally believe that that is true. I don't know that that's what's coming from here, but I think what really is happening is Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is for those who will have this kind of childlike faith, who don't have to figure it out, who don't have to know how, is it my choice or is it God's choosing? I don't know. You explain that to me and I'll come. Well, I can't explain it. That's not the kind of faith Jesus is looking for. Well, I'll come if you can figure out for me how he killed all those uh, enemy armies of Egypt in that Red Sea. Or was it the Reed Sea? Because the Reed Sea is only ankle deep. How did he kill? Look, I don't know. And did he really do those plagues? Were they really frogs? I mean, that's a lot of frogs. And then he went away and then he, did he really walk on water? Really? Is that really something? You're going to have to explain to me and prove to me. Look, Jesus is like, if I got to prove it to you, you're not going to get it. I'm going to get up from the dead. And then like 2,000 plus years later, they're still not going to be able to definitively deny that historical fact. If that ain't enough for you, I don't know what to tell you. I'm looking for those that will go, I'm in. Can I come in? He's like, yes, you can. That's the kind of faith. Consistent, persistent in my prayer. Humble in my coming to Him. Humble in my trusting in Him. And dependent on Him. Not having to figure out how it all works. How it all is going to come together. I'm just with him. Yesterday afternoon, I sat right there on that front row with, uh, with Tammy Moore, who was holding her first grandbaby. 
And he was stone cold asleep right there on her. And I said to her, I said, you know what? That child right there has no idea where he's at. That child has no idea what's going on in the world. That child has no clue about what he's going to be or what even that means or where his next meal is going to come from or what. It just doesn't matter to him. But he is perfectly satisfied asleep right there. That's the kind of faith that we will navigate these crazy times with. That's the way that we will say, Lord, I'm here again. I'm asking you to do. I know you said you will, and I know you said it'll be swift, and I know that if it's not here yet, then you've got some other purpose. I want to be faithful. And God, I just, I know I don't bring anything to the table. I require your grace. I require your mercy. I require everything that I can accomplish. Gotta come from you. I don't have the ability in it myself, but I tell you what, whatever you decide, whatever you're going to do, I'm with you. That's how we navigate these times. And we get up and we face opposition and we present the gospel and we act like Jesus and we wait on his return. Does that make sense? That could start by today the simple act of, Father, I've been walking on my own. I've been following my own desires and my own intentions You've been on the back shelf, if you've been on the shelf at all in my life. I want your mission. I want your promises. I want your son. I want who I am in him to be the driving force of who I am. And I want everybody who knows me to know that's where I'm headed. And that's who I'm headed there with. And then as we face difficulties and we come around our our brothers and sisters, instead of, instead of, fueling that fire of frustration and aggravation, we go, I think we just need to pray. I think we just need to take this before God. Trust Him. Let's be humble about what we don't know. And let's just trust Him like we believe He's got it all under control. That's how we navigate. We got to cultivate prayer as a normal part of our daily life. We got to be careful of the temptation to see others through the lens of our own self-righteousness. We got to know that we can run to Him in total reckless dependency and trust. Because when we do, we will find Him waiting. We will find Him able. We will find Him directing us in the way that we need to go and to think. Agreed? All right, well, let's stand together then. We're going to bow our heads. We're going to close our eyes. We're going to ask God to take His Word, to burn it into our hearts and minds so that it becomes a directional force for this week. If by chance you were to say today, Pastor Kevin, I'm not real sure that I'm one of God's children. Well, then I want to take you back to that communion cup that was so hard to get into this morning. And I want to tell you about the body of Christ that was broken for you. I want to tell you about His shed blood that was poured out in your place for your sin, knowing good and well who you are and what you'll never be. And yet he laid down his life so that he might raise you up to new life on the basis of what he does and never on the basis of what you can do. It can be received by faith by saying, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. 
I believe that you died for me. I believe you're alive today. And God, I just, I need salvation. I need forgiveness. I, I need, I need a, a new direction. I need a new name, new family, new purpose for today, a new destiny for tomorrow. And you can have it if by faith he is yours and by faith alone. Christian, we navigate the time between now and then with confident but prayerful dependence. And so, Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. And we ask that you would burn into our minds those truths that that not only can we walk on, but that we must walk on if we're going to be successful, if we're going to be accurate representations of your son, if we're going to be faithful as you've called us to be. If you're going to return and find us faithful, it's going to be on the back of prayerful dependence. And we ask that you'll help us to see that, to put it into practice even today. God, I pray for those that are homesick today. I pray for those that are struggling with whatever is going on in life. Some may be even struggling with sin and not realizing that there's an answer to that sin. And it is confession, repentance, and restoration. I pray that you will break their hearts Those of your children who need to be back in fellowship with you and your people. And God, give us the ability to see them as you do. As your children who need to be restored and welcomed back into the body. Father, I pray that you'll use us in whatever way you see fit. Help us to be confident that whatever way you see fit is always going to be the best thing for us. We love you. We trust you. We look forward to the return of your son. Until then, help us to be prayerfully dependent. For it is in Jesus' name that all of Oasis Church says, Amen.